What if I tell the story? I don't know what you're going to say, okay. but yes. Fine. <laughs> So you came into sort of the public consciousness as vocal coaches on television. It was Luther Vandross, <gasps> and he said, do you have a vocal coach? And I was like, no, do you? And he said, of course. I thought he was just great because he woke up one morning and he was great. Oh, that's it. Yeah. David was on fire. <laughs> <laughs> David and I were so shocked when marriage worked. You can get past the fact that you've got an incurable disease. There is magic the other side of that. So our children are incredibly intersectional. So of course they're mixed race and they are neurodivergent. How many are non-binary <laughs> What are the figures here? It takes us right back to the conversation we were having about coaching. You know, some people go, well, I don't naturally get this. Welcome to the party, that's yeah. literally us. Our trans and non-binary people are way more patient than we realize. It's okay to be different. Yeah. And we keep on learning. neurodivergent. And David and Carrie are sharing their experiences with a deep dive into their life and frequently encountered situations in order to help guide other families. In their new book, A Very Modern Family, they aim to help parents whose children are gender fluid and or neurodiverse, while helping them to understand and have compassion for what their children are experiencing. I remember interviewing Carrie and David when I was but a young, somewhat fresh-faced journalist, and they left me with such a strong impression. Whenever I've spoken about them since, I've said how open, generous, kind and supportive they are. I have no doubt that's how you'll feel about them at the end of this conversation today. And in every episode, I ask my guests to share with me their life lessons, what they've learned from having navigated through the trickiest stuff life throws at you. And one thing you can absolutely say about Carrie and David is that they will always pass on their learnings so the next person doesn't have to suffer as much. Carrie and David, it's beyond a pleasure to welcome you onto the Evergun Show. Thank you. I don't know what to say after that. It's lovely being here. I want to be like those people. (laughs) (laughs) But it's true. And I can't remember exactly when it was. I remember it at the Covent Garden Hotel. 
Yeah. And it was a long, long time ago. And I we had lunch. It. Yeah. And I just thought, those people are excellent. Oh, thank you. So lovely. Of you. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. It is, what, what's taken us so long? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't. And also, you stuck in my mind because you said one of the nicest things anyone's ever said to me that day. What was that? You told me I look like Nelly Furtado. Yeah. Which is true. Which is true. <laughs> well, I don't know, but I'll take it. No, it's true. She's very beautiful. She really is. Uh, yeah, you left a. You really did make an impression on me at a time when I was interviewing a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things where it sort of all happens in a blur. But yeah. you were people yeah. who really stood out for me. Oh, so I'm really. You. It feels very right to have you on the thank podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for asking thank us. Um, so what's been happening since we last spoke? <laughs> <laughs> Just a few kids and a bit of work. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. we're still here, which is great. Yes, because I think the last time we spoke, Olive had just started Tracy Beaker, had just started acting. Absolutely. Yes. The very Absolutely. first acting Super job. Um, 10? They were 10. Yeah, they were 10. Yeah. So Sorosk was 18 years ago. They went to Wales and did Tracy Beaker and absolutely got the bug yeah, of acting. Yeah, that was it. David and I were like, you're not doing it. You're not doing any acting. And then... We said, all right, you can go for the audition. And then we were hoping, like, you know, they sounds awful, but we kind of hoped they'd get rejected and then they'd go, <laughs> oh, this is so hard, I'm not doing this. And then they got the job. And then the rest is history, really, because they just went from one thing to the next. And, mm. and yeah, loved it. They loved found, it. yeah. it's an amazing thing, I think, when you find your thing mm. very young. Because quite often people go through a lot of things that they think they're going to like or they think they ought to do. And never really discover the thing that makes their heart sing. But when you find it really early and you're able to pursue it, it's a brilliant thing. It's a fantastic mm. thing. It's a gift. So you came into sort of the public consciousness as coaches, vocal coaches mm-hmm. yeah. on television. Obviously, there's a, there's lots more to what you do, but a lot of people might recognise you from that. And so in many ways, you are the guiders. You are the ones who say, you should do this or trust us this is the sort of thing that you should try or you're the safe pair of hands so I always ask people the first question is what's your relationship like with risk and it would seem that you in your jobs you're helping people avoid the big risks and setting them on a more certain path but are you well I don't think so I actually think quite the opposite I think what we're doing is we're helping people to not go into an area of risk pretending there isn't any. Mm. We're preparing them for the eventuality of risk and we're preparing them to be able to navigate their way home if they get lost. I think that risk is an interesting thing because risk is a lot about change and Mm. change is by nature really uncomfortable. So I suppose as coaches, what we've always loved doing is kind of hand-holding people through those really uncomfortable times because then you can't say, well, take away your discomfort because then you're going to have to basically run back to whatever it was you were doing that you felt safe with. Mm. And so what we're saying is, yeah, face that risk. It's going to be uncomfortable, though, and it might be uncomfortable for some time, but you can do it. You can get through this, Uh, whether that's just learning a song and singing it publicly or whether that's much bigger life stuff. The thing Mm. to remember, of course, is that everybody who's an expert at something began as a complete novice, began as somebody who is unable to do something. And, you know, I think that one of the things in life that we probably get taught, if not overtly, then covertly, is that unless you're really good at something, the chances are you'll never be good at it. 
And that's absolutely yeah, not, not true. true. Mm. So, yeah, the risk is, for some people, the biggest risk is taking the risk to believe that they can become good at something that they don't currently think that they can. And that involves, as Carrie said, them stepping out of their comfort zone constantly. Mm. You know, I remember once somebody, I, I, I was saying to somebody, how good can I be? And they said, as good as you want to be. Yeah. How mm. good do you want to be? How much are you prepared to work towards being as skillful or as, as comfortable or as good at anything? Because it means constantly stepping beyond what you can do. So I, rather than helping people to uh, alleviating risk rather and, and helping people to avoid risk, I think that what we do is we prepare people to go into something that involves risk. Mm. I like that. Yeah. So you're the risk guiders. Yeah. yeah. And, and ultimately, risk will at some point involve failure. And that's okay. Navigating failure is part of the risk. You've got mm. to allow yourself to feel those really uncomfortable feelings, yeah. to be comfortable with discomfort. That was always in my head. That's what I'm always telling myself. This is uncomfortable. Just be comfortable with the discomfort. It's okay. It's okay. And, and failure is okay because you mm. will get through. There'll be something beyond this that you'll have learned something from this somewhere along the way and i kind of think it happened in the 80s to be honest i think we really fetishized and glamorized this idea of being so good at something naturally you just needed your one moment and then the whole so world true. will see it so true and also that failure wasn't part of the journey that it was just you're going to be really fantastic and then you're going to be a worldwide star Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, someone sold that dream, didn't yeah. they? And and we all bought into that. And you're absolutely right, Emma. They're, they're, I don't know where that came from, but I think you're. I think you're right, because there are people that have natural talent, whatever that is in, whether that's singing or whatever it is, it could be all kinds of stuff. But there are people who are naturally more talented immediately. Hmm. But those are not always the people that succeed. It's quite mm. often, in our experience, the people that just put the hard work in and do not yep. give up. If talent, and they're the people who are still here, mm. still doing stuff. If talent doesn't work hard, hard work always gets further than talent. You know, I had an epiphany when I was in New York in the mid-80s. I was um, making records and I was having hits in the UK and in Europe and... I was really frustrated with my singing and wanted to be better. Um, and I went to New York and in the next studio to me, in the in the room was like my favourite singer. I, it was Luther Vandross. <gasps> and I stood with him in the lift and, because he's tall, he was about 6'5". Oh, that's Luther Vandross. Anyway, he was in the next scene and it turned out that he was doing vocal production for somebody I'd met lots in New York. It was a friend. So I stuck my head around the door and I listened to them. And then the next day I saw him again and said, that was great what you were doing last night. And he said, oh, no, no, that was just the guide. We're doing the real thing today. And I started talking to him about singing. And he started using terms that I'd never heard. And he said, do you have a vocal coach? And I was like, no, do you? <laughs> and he said, of course. And I was like, I thought he was just great because he woke up one morning and he was great. Mm. And then he started talking to me about the fact that singers that I loved, Aretha Franklin, went to the same vocal coach as him. You know, like Gladys Knight had had a vocal coach. I'm, I'm going, hold on a minute. I can learn to be better at this. And so, yes, I actually suspect that what you were saying, I had completely bought into. You are only as good as you naturally are. 
And it was when I spoke to somebody who I thought was brilliant mm. that I learned that you could become better than you naturally are at anything. Oh, I need to print that and put it on a T-shirt. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, so let's talk about risk, actually, because um, otherwise I'm going to go down a very long rabbit hole about singing. So I wanted to ask you, as I always do with my guests, to ask about risk. And we've talked about your relationship with guiding other people. But when I asked you what yours was, you actually said it was having children. Yeah, it was a massive risk. I think initially because I have Crohn's disease. And so, and I was diagnosed at, I started getting ill when I was 18 and diagnosed at 20. So there was always this thing in the back of my mind, I think, once I had Crohn's, that perhaps I wouldn't be able to have children. And, and I think, because I think most people just grow up thinking, yeah, I'll just have children and that's what's going to happen. And and then sometimes it doesn't. So I never took that for granted. Um, and I also didn't come, or well, neither David or I, we just grew up with mums. So mm. we don't know what a husband really looks like. We don't know what dad looks like. We just know mums. That's the role that we were brought up by. So... I think that for us, David and I were so shocked when marriage worked. We were like, yeah. oh, my gosh, we've got this. How did that happen? It <laughs> was incredible. Yeah. Um, really, really staggering. And I, I'm not joking. We were, were, were really amazed that, wow, we, you know, we'd look at each other, you know, every few weeks and go, oh, my gosh, we're still in love. And we're like, we're three years in. And they're like, oh, my gosh, we're, we're four years in. You know, we're still doing yeah. it at 37 years, still saying we still I appreciate each other that. in that way. Because we don't come from families where, well, I don't, I don't come from a family where everyone stays married. And, and I grew up with just my mum. So for me, I was so amazed that marriage worked. I also, it came with a fear that, you know, what's going to happen. You're going to have a child and then that's the thing that will make it all go kaput. Yes. Um, and so I really feared that. Um, so I think part of me kind of went, well, you might not be able to have children and then your marriage might go kaput. So actually, it doesn't really matter whether you have children or not. And so David and I were kind of both a bit take it or leave it. Mm -hmm. We were never sort of people who said we're going to get married and we're going to have a family. For us, it was just, as Carrie said, it was the wonder of being married. I remember about six weeks into our marriage. Do you mind if I tell this story? I don't know what you're going to say, okay, but yeah, say fine. what you want. Six weeks, six weeks into our marriage, Carrie came home one day. She'd been out working that day, and I was sitting on the stairs crying. And Carrie said, what's wrong? And I said, I've just realised that I don't have a clue how to be a husband. I just, I honestly don't know what to do. And Carrie said, well, you do what you've been doing and I'll call that being a husband and I'll just keep doing what I've been doing if you'll call that being a wife. And that's pretty much what we've done. Yeah. We don't really have set We don't have set roles or that. set ideas because we didn't grow up with a template. Mm. And in a way, that's really worked to our it's advantage. Really yeah. Because... You know, there are, there are people who we've spoken to over time and gone, and they've gone, oh, you know, we're not getting on, blah, blah, blah. And he says this and she says that. And and we've realized that, hold on, your dad is married to your mum because you're being what you think a wife is based on your experience mm. and your observation of your mother. You're being what you think a husband based on your experience, your observation of your mother. And usually they say, gosh, if my dad married her mum, it'd be a disaster. So... 
you know, I think not having a template has actually worked for us. You got to write it yourself. Yeah, we had to do it ourselves. And but so I think it everybody does, don't they? Yeah, and we, well, they do. And also you have all different kinds of setups, don't you? So, every, you know, there, there isn't a standard template no. anymore. Um, that, that's a lot broader than it perhaps it was in the mid-80s. Um, but I think the children thing, we were eight years in and we went to Jamaica and we were working in Jamaica. We were like, should we try for a child? Mm-hmm. It's like, let's, let's just see what would happen. And then I got pregnant straight away. And um, so, yeah, that was like, okay, right. Now we really, <laughs> like, that's it now, right? We've, we've done it. And, um, yeah, so I think David and I read every single book on parenting that was available in 1994. <laughs> um, oh, yes, everyone, chapter and yeah, verse. Oh, my gosh, we were just so worried. Yeah, yeah, really just deeply insecure about what it would do for... And then it's not like we even got better once we had one child and, like, we had, no. uh, you know, had Olive and then we're like, oh, my gosh, we're really... This still works. It wow, works. we're still rocking hey. this. This is great. And it was like, don't have a second because you know what's going to happen if you have the second. Yeah. That's when it all goes kaput. So there's, there's always that, that dread fear still of, there. of... For me, that risk has always been there. Um so quite how we've ended up with four children, I don't know. But we, we just must kind have gone past taking, it at some point. Yeah, some, <laughs> somewhere along the, the line, we just went, okay, it doesn't matter anymore. My, just keep doing it. My fear, actually, uh, the, the biggest risk was, was the same as having kids, but my fear about it was that I didn't have a template for a father. Mm. So I didn't, I, I wanted so much to be a good father. I wanted to be the father that I'd have wanted but I didn't have a clue how you even began that. You're an amazing father. That's really cool. No, you are. You're absolutely brilliant. Uh, but and and I was just afraid that I would actually be a bad father, and or or, or just not know how to not be. And um, so yeah, that I was I was very anxious about that. Do you? How do you think you're doing? I think actually, I worked something out that being a good father. It's a bit like being a good partner. It's not universal. It's specific to the people you're partnering. It's specific to the people you're fathering. Yeah. I think I'm doing all right with the kids I'm fathering. I think I'm a good father to our children. And that's all that I ever wanted to be with regard to fathering. I didn't want to be Father Christmas and sort of like the <laughs> universal template for yeah. a good father because I can't be one. Um, but... Yeah, I think I have learned over time and am constantly learning mm. as our children are constantly changing how to be a father. It's an ongoing process. When I read uh, that, that was your biggest risk, I thought, these people know when they're onto a good thing. Why? Because the fact that you appreciated what you had and knew that oh, it was going to be yeah. a risk, I thought, actually, there's a real... A real sense of appreciating mm. what you have in the here and now. Oh my gosh, yeah, yeah. we really do. I'm wondering whether to to push it. Yeah, yeah. we do. We we definitely appreciate the small wins of life, and I think we always have. I think that's one of the gifts of being diagnosed with an incurable disease at a young age is that if you can get through, if you can get past it, if you can get past the fact that you've got an incurable disease. There is magic the other side of that. And that magic kind of prepares you for the rest of your life. So when all the other things come along and you're like, whoa, that's hard, whoa, this is difficult, 
what you learn in that very dark space, that very difficult space, is really usable, really, really usable. So, um, yeah, I really appreciate I appreciate every day I'm not in pain. Mm. Like, you know, I wake up and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm not in pain. That's really good, right? Whereas most people would, would take that for granted. I certainly did before I got sick. Yeah. It's interesting because I've been struggling for a while to find the vocabulary to put into words what's been bothering me about the culture that we're in at the moment of kind of... Um, and it's because it's it feels as though often we glamorize defining our personality by our deepest trauma or our toughest yes. struggle. Yes. That seem that it becomes our identity. I agree. And defining. And even thinking about you back in the day, you would in one breath you would say, I have Crohn's disease. And I remember there was a reality show that followed you for a while with your mm-hmm. choir when you yeah. were in hospital. Yeah. And yet you'd be on Fame Academy, the next, and you yeah. feel, how, this, it wasn't defining you that you had this issue. It's an experience that you had, have. Yeah. And I mean, Series 2 of Fame Academy, I didn't eat for the whole of Series 2. I wasn't allowed to eat. I just had a drink, a prescription mm. that I lived on. But I don't know. I just thought, well, I can either lay in bed and have this drink or I can just go to work. And yeah. I thought, hey, just go to work. You can, you, I can, you know, got two good legs. I can still see Something I really learned from Carrie, actually, and, and how Carrie has dealt with Crohn's over the years, is that you can have something without it having you. Oh, that's it. Yeah. That's it. You've still got it. Those truths, so, you know, those things, in regard to what you were saying about, you know, people being defined by the suffering they've gone through, I think it it's important that we hear those voices, but you are right. To have your voice heard but not be defined by it, mm. I think that's that's a that's mm. a hard space to hold, right? Mm. Yeah. And I think that's part of part of growth, I suppose, is learning how to accept this is happening to me and there might be days where it really feels overwhelming. But the moment you wake up and you don't feel bad about it or you feel like there's a little break in the clouds, just grabbing that mm. because that to me is hope. If I didn't have hope, I would be done mm. i would definitely be done hope is what i hold on to i mean one of the um questions i always ask us as well beforehand is what's the excuse that has held you back or that you make for others and one of the reasons why it's so high up in questions that i like to ask guests on the show is because i know that i am someone who for a long time would put excuses between me and what i wanted because yeah. it was easier than sort of doing yeah. the work and what I hear here is it's not an excuse. I'm still going to go for what I yeah. want and live the life I want. Um, there's, it's interesting because the word neurodivergent means that it's different from whatever we think is normal or neuropredominant. Like a no- neurotypical, most people are neurotypical, but neurodivergent people, and there's loads and loads of people who are neurodivergent out there with various different divergences that might be ADHD, it might be autism, it might be whatever. But many of us are on the cusp of those things or have traits. And so for me, one of the very definite things is like, no, you don't have an excuse, Carrie, that's it. And it's very, very black and white. Mm. And maybe there are disadvantages to me not being neurotypical. But that to me is one of the advantages of being out, mm. out of the box. I do think I'm out of the box. And therefore, it's, it's just black and white for me that that particular area is like, no, 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 you can't make excuses for yourself. Yeah. But, I mean, be compassionate if there's something difficult going mm. on. But the minute you've got any semblance of getting stuff together, do it, run for it, run at it. 
Um, you know, because you, you're only going to live that day once, aren't you? Like, you're not yeah, going to get that chance so again. Right. And and I, I don't want to miss stuff. Mm. You, that was what you said. And it was interesting, David, that you said not knowing when's the right time. Absolutely. Because I think that I think that when I had nothing, I had nothing to lose. And so I true. was so driven I would just, I mean, I would get my hustle on and I would hustle <laughs> and push and go back and doors would slam in my faces and I'd come back and knock on your the faces. door. My faces, yeah. <laughs> I, just, I put on a different face going, hi. Oh, you didn't like the smiley one? <laughs> I'm thoughtful, I'm serious, I'm an artist, but whatever. Doors would slam in my face. I would be going back and knocking on the door. But then a really strange thing happened that taught me something about myself. You see, I'd grown up with nothing material. I'd grown up with nothing social. I didn't have any social standing. I'd grown up with no authority, influence, impact, or nobody listened to me really because, you know, you didn't know, I'm just a poor kid from East London. But then I had something to lose. I had success. I had hits. And I knew that at some point I was going to lose it. You know, like one in 50 artists continues on for years and years and years. And I thought, okay, I've lost that. I don't want to lose the next thing. Um, I don't want to lose this. Let's not have kids. I don't want to lose this. Okay, we had kids. We haven't lost it. Ah, I'm a coach. I've learned so much. I don't want to be a coach. I did it first day. I was like, great, I've done it. Had we not been asked, it would never have been the right time to become a coach. Mm. Yeah. Because I would have gone, it's not the right time. I need to keep pursuing this. And it's not knowing when to take the risk because of fear of losing something that I already have. And it took me a long time to realise that actually... There are two types of people. There are two people and there are from people. And the people who are two people see an objective and a goal and a desire and they push towards it. And even if they have to leave stuff behind, if they have to take off what they're carrying to get to where they're going, they will do that. You know, like a rocket taking off and then shedding different <laughs> and then a little bit's left and it gets there. And there are from people, people who are trying to move away from something and so afraid of going back there that every time they look towards moving forward and it means dropping something, they're afraid that that thing they drop may be the thing that stops them from going back to the beginning. Mm. Funnily enough, because when we met you, you were working for OK Magazine mm. and, and OK Magazine is really features that particular job features heavily in our history because... That was the time during Fame Academy when the PR would run into the the staff room where the people, us, you know, coaches and whatever judges were there, and they would say, "Who wants to do OK Magazine?" <laughs> and everyone was being really like, "Well, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I don't mind. Yeah, I'll do it." And I was like, "Can I do it? I'm so excited because my mum loves OK Magazine, and I know. And the great thing is, I know it will be chip paper in three weeks. But the point is." I knew that it was a moment that was really exciting. So I yeah. really, I enjoyed doing Fame Academy. David, on the other hand, spent the whole time going, oh my God, we're going to lose something. What if we don't sustain this? What happens? We need to keep, you know, it was just, was anxious the whole time. Mm. And yes. so I think that is, but also you've grown up in a house where your mum was like, don't stand on the chair because you might fall off. Whereas my mum was like, why don't you just try and climb up on the ceiling, babe? Yeah. You know, it's just a different yeah. Those risks that you have from your parents, if you're, mm. they're risk averse or just, just go for it. So I've had to, I have really had to coach myself into not being afraid to lose. Yes. 
not being afraid to lose things and really believe that, you know what, if I lose something, that's fine. It's because I'm on the way to something better. Mm. I'm on the way to something different, not necessarily something more. I think if you grow up with a more or less attitude, then the thing is, I don't want less than I've already got. But actually, if you grow up with an attitude that says, like, Carrie, it's a new adventure, mm. then the something different isn't more or less. It's just different. Yeah. I will mention this because you mentioned OK Magazine, because, David, you and I have a lot in common. And that, that was my dream job. I got yeah. that job and I could not believe it. And yeah, so I spent I the whole time thinking I was going to lose it. Yeah. The yeah. whole time yeah. thinking I was going to lose it. And... I now if I go home and I'm with my family and I'm doing something, say I'm moving a mattress or I'm moving some furniture, I look at my dad and I say, let's just assume you're going to say careful 10 times, but you don't have to say it because I know that you're telling me to be careful. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Just that those words that we speak over our children or have had spoken over us and what they develop into later. Mm. I mean, I've got lots of negative stuff too. I'm, I'm sounding a bit like a totally positive person. I'm really not just always a positive person. David, I think, is just so even in terms of his, you know, sort of his moods and stuff. He's great. But you do struggle with that. Yeah. I'm actually, fear of loss. I'm actually a positive person, but it's a fear of loss. And it's it's yeah. it's also driven. It it it's It's funny how I think in life sometimes... Things grow up almost like like weeds or like climbers. They they intertwine. Mm. So you know, my fear of loss is it's both it's emotional, it's parental, it's financial. It's always <laughs> it, but 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 because those things are interwoven. Mm. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? From yeah. childhood, and so I've had to sort of come to a point where I go, okay, what is it that really matters? The things that matter the most. I can't lose. The best things in life aren't things. Mm. Yeah. So if I can't lose what really matters, then what have I got to lose? I love it. Again, I'm going to get lots of this in the episode <laughs> printed on stationery and T-shirts. There's a mark. lot of T-shirts. There's a whole new wardrobe. There. A whole new wardrobe. Yeah. I, might, I might just ask for doubles of those. <laughs> they, yeah. they was on fire. We'll do, <laughs> we'll do a bulk order, don't you worry. So let's move from that into the obstacles. Now, I asked you about uh, the biggest obstacle you've had to overcome. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, we've gone from light... <laughs> Light and fun too. We are going to dig yeah. into it a little bit because yeah. that's cool. Yeah, you've talked about and you've written a book about this. So let's talk about it. It's having kids. Yeah, children who are incredible, beautiful, phenomenal human beings that don't fit into the world is heartbreaking. Yeah, it's the biggest obstacle in so many ways. Yeah. When did you realise that? Because I, I, I'm not a parent myself, but I can imagine I would think, well, you do this, you go to school, you do this, they make friends. Yeah. And you think that it's going to look a certain way. Yeah. And at some mm -hmm. point you realise it, it doesn't look like that. When did no. that happen? So I think that began very gently, probably with Olive, our first child, uh, who was at 18 diagnosed with ADHD. But we know that the 
um, the figures for black and mixed race children. So when when they're at school and there are things that are not quite happening that should be happening for that child, they get sent down one of two pathways. One is called SEND, which is Special Educational Needs and Disability. So that's one thing. Or they get sent down an SEMH pathway, which is Social, Emotional and Mental Health. So we know that children that are black and mixed race have a much higher proportion of being sent down a social, emotional, mental health pathway. In other words, what that really means, in essence, is that the teachers or the SENCO, who's the person that looks after special needs and stuff, will think... What does SENCO mean? SENCO is a special educational needs and disability coordinator. Yeah. Yeah, that's the person in the school that deals with that stuff. But that person or the teachers or the head or whoever's dealing with your child... In black and mixed race children, there's a much higher percentage of children. They'll just go, summit with the parents going on there. It's a social issue. It's an emotional issue. It's a mental health issue. So Olive didn't get really looked at in terms of actually having ADHD until they were 18. um, Because they were just seen as, oh, they just behave a bit, misbehave. They're loud. Uh, Must be something going on at home. You know, and our experience of Olive at home was that they were just delightful and, and unbelievably compliant. You know, yeah. this is the child you'd find on the <laughs> naughty step. This is the child that would be going, um, I'm really sorry. And you'd go, why are you sorry? I, I stole a sweet out the kitchen. You were like, honestly, get off the naughty step, really. They put themselves on the they naughty put step. put themselves <laughs> on there. Do you know what I mean? Like, they re- were really, and by nature, and they're still like that now, there's a part of them that's incredibly compliant. Um, you called them Olive the Confessor in those days. Yeah. <laughs> it was me. I did it. What is it you've done? <laughs> so I think that, that was that was the beginning, and then we began to realise with our the next two children, Thailand and uh, Thailand and Arlo. In two thousand and nine, they were both diagnosed as autistic, and you know, for us, I know for many parents, they they grieve that. I don't think we grieve that because. I guess logic for me is that, well, they're still just the same children, aren't they? They've just got a label now that explains. Yeah, we have an explanation. Yeah. Um, But I think what we hadn't thought about was how difficult it would be navigating the world and school Mm. and systems and therapy and all of that stuff, accessing. You just imagine, like you've got Crohn's disease. Right, so you go to the hospital and they tell you what pathway you're on and they give you the medication you need and you have your consultant and you're on your way. But if you have a child with special needs, that's not the case. Mm. You know, here's, here's your diagnosis, bye. And then as parents, you are left to mop up and work out and educate yourself. And then you're left to go to school and work out why aren't school making these adjustments for my child? So then you end up a, what they call a warrior parent, which, you know, is always used as a really horrible slur on, on parents. Warrior parents are not born. War, warrior parents are are kind of carved out of this situation where nothing happens for their child. It just, school isn't working for their child. And you watch your child... I don't know, just losing their will to live, which yeah. is what we went through and 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 continue to go through. And when you watch your child like that or your children in that space, as a parent, it's crazy because you would think the biggest obstacles are going to be in your home, trying to work out how to work with your autistic child. But actually, that bit is easy compared with 
trying to navigate systems, mm. navigating systems. And I'm someone that can write a letter, write an email. If English wasn't my first language, I do not know how some parents cope. Um, and I'm, I know also, we know that, you know, access to mental health services since COVID has gone up by, uh, there's more referrals, 50% more referrals. So we know we're not just talking about children that are vulnerable or have got, you know, are, are autistic or have ADHD or whatever. We're talking about your regular neurotypical kids now are mm. having men, big mental health issues and breakdowns. Mm. And so if you can't access services, there is a lot of parents out there now who are facing those same obstacles that are saying, I can't help my child. I thought I thought this would be open for me. I thought I'd get this. So I think those are the biggest the biggest challenges for me have been, I guess, learning that no one's going to be there for you. You're on your own. Wow. And so that's that's really lone and also I guess you have to it's lonely and then you also have to make a decision I guess which is I have to put me on hold because yeah. because they don't have anyone in the system I have to now put myself in the system mm-hmm. yeah to advocate for my in children. the place of the system yeah. and then that label that you put the warrior parent is born mm. you know from carved out of the rock face of indifference and resistance and opposition and adversity and all the things that you would think wouldn't be there all the people who don't come around not because they don't care quite often because they're just not there mm. because the funding isn't there the resourcing yeah, isn't there it's a systemic the system it's, yeah. a, it's systemic and what it means is that the problems aren't going to go away so if if nothing is done people end up having to do it for themselves. So, you know, and and life doesn't stop, does it? So you're still trying to work. And there's been many a time where I've come off suicide watch in hospital with one of the children, gone to work, filmed the one show, (laughs) gone back in, you know, David swapped over, David's done the school run, then we've swapped over, he stayed at the hospital during the day and then I've finished the one show and gone back into hospital in the evening. And and that was our life. And then we had a child that was just out of school for three years because there was no school for that child. There was no school for Arlo for three years, from 11 to 14. Really formative years, because they were, at that point, there, there was no autism schools available at that point. Um, and the mainstream schools were like, no, your child's too autistic. And then the autis- autism schools were like, your child's really fit for mainstream. So they fell into the gap. And when they fall into the gap, you suddenly have to have to deal with a child that's at home the whole time and you are then a teacher and a therapist and play date you know they have no social life they have no friends and so you have to try and keep their mental health buoyant and and so zero socialization and zero interaction with people of their own age yeah and even things like you know even when Arlo did get a school at the age of 14 and is now in you know in the most amazing school and people are like wow your child got into that school wow you must be so pleased and I'm I am really super grateful but those three years are such important years Mm. for any child that's when your identity is forming you know at age 11 you leave school and it's all Disney and you get back at 14 it's sex drugs and rock and roll you know and you've got to navigate that (laughs) and you've missed all your education and all your socializing Mm. and you're like whoa what's going on here and as parents you you're trying to just shore up the sides and go okay let's try and help you to navigate teenage when you've got these lost years and trauma Mm. But then we discovered through this that we're not alone. 
And that is one of the greatest discoveries of this. We started yeah. a group and we discovered that a group of families with children on the spectrum and we discovered that so many of them were walking an identical yeah. walk with no school, with no socialisation, with never being invited to parties, never being invited on playdates because yeah. they were the different kid. And you realise, actually, we are alone in company. And yeah. that makes a difference. Yeah, there's a whole community. We have over 200 families now that we we meet with. And we've been doing that group, running that group for 10 years. 11 years? Yeah. 10, I think. Yeah, 10, 10 years. 11, yeah. Yeah. Um, a few of my friends have quite young children. Mm-hmm. And what happens with young kids that didn't happen in my generation is that you, you get um, these problems are identified. Or I say problems, but these mm. issues might yeah. be identified mm-hmm. a lot earlier. Mm-hmm. And what it's done for a lot of my friends is it's thrown up for them. Oh, what has been, my kids have been diagnosed with this. And I now realise, because I'm educating myself, I think I probably had the same David had that experience. Ah, okay. So I get I get home from a studio one night. Terry says, Come on, I've got to show you something. And I think I know what may be holding Olive back. I think there may be something here. Have a look at this. I said, what is it? Terry said, It's um it's characteristics of ADHD. And there are thirty of them. I'm like, okay, fine, I'll read them. So I read them. Distracted. Yeah. I read them at the end of the 30, I say. Chaotic. Yeah. Carrie, <laughs> I really, I'm so glad that you're doing this, but I think we've got to keep going because there's clearly nothing wrong with Olive because there are 30, I've got 26 of these. <laughs> and there's, and, and Carrie's like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'm trying to tell you something. Oh, that would explain so much of my life. I get it now. Yeah. And why you were called lazy. Yes. You know, and I think that's just it, isn't it? No one said, actually, there's a, there's a need there. You've got a, a need. You're super intelligent, but you've got all these other, other stuff going yeah. on. Yeah. And like distracted. Why can't you just like stay on the one thing? Or I stay on the one thing. And mm. it's like, why are you obsessing about the one thing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you have three children, all of whom at some point have one of these diagnoses and you're alone mm. and before you build this community around mm-hmm. you. Did you internalise that? Did you feel guilty when because you were alone and you're like, is it something that we did? Yeah. And of course, we have our fourth child as well. So uh, um, I think that what does happen, the irony of feeling like you've lost your voice, you've lost your agency, that you have no power, you have no autonomy. Everyone is going to make decisions about your child and therefore that's your life, your parenting. I think those feelings of loss are huge. Um, and I think that's why finding other like-minded people, but you know, it's interesting when I say like-minded, it doesn't have to be people that have got neurodivergent children. I think we've all gone through stuff in life. And, and I think when you connect, I'm so much more interested in what people have been through and where they're at on that and where, where you are on your, the journey, the journey, <laughs> the, the, J we, word. Yeah, the, the journey. <laughs> you know, where, where people are at. And, and so for me, yeah, there were feeling great feelings of loss and I had no voice. And I still feel like that now. I, th- I think there are many situations that I've found myself in, even in the last year, where I just thought, okay, I'm voiceless. I'm crushed. 
Um, and right now I'm feeling crushed, but I know that from experience something will happen and I will emerge out of this somehow. But it's um, those feelings are real, yeah, for sure. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. In addition to this, they you have four children, and you also have uh, how many are non-binary and trans? <laughs> what are the figures here? Okay, yeah, well, can I need some stats? <laughs> <laughs> Our own little scientific pool, because uh, this is an, this is another yeah. significant step on their journey. Yeah, so our children are incredibly intersectional. So of course they're mixed race, and they are neurodivergent. And they have different sexualities. And also then the whole gender thing came up um, in the last few years. And so um, Olive is non-binary. Ty is trans. And Arlo is currently trans, but is is more fluid. So, you know, Arlo is younger. So we're just, walk- with all of our children, we're just jogging alongside wherever we're at today. Okay, that's what, that's, that's where we're at. Mm-hmm. Um and so, yeah, that, that's been a whole area of discovery and learning as well for us. Huge area. The reason I wanted to ask you about that is because obviously you discuss it in the book. Mm. But it's because it feels as though I haven't heard this perspective of what it's like for a parent to navigate this with their children. And also, I feel as someone who doesn't have kids and who doesn't actually know very many people who are trans or non-binary um it's when i see email signatures from people where it uh, puts their pronouns yeah. that's a really new thing for me mm-hmm. and so and for many people yeah. yeah and i feel extremely clumsy in this space about the vocabulary that's appropriate because i like to think of myself as an ally i don't ever want anybody to feel less than or othered or to feel rubbish but i am aware that by not knowing a lot about this mm. I could very easily say something and um, it could potentially harm someone. And I don't want to do that. So you are literally where we were at two or three years ago. Literally everything you're saying there is where our hearts were at, which is like, okay, this is so new and so I don't know anything about this. And, And so therefore I need to learn super quick. Uh, because I don't want to be clumsy, but what I have learned, like just to 
ease up a little bit is that our trans and non-binary people are way more patient than we realise. And what they see is they know very, very well the difference between someone who really wants to make the effort and put the work in and and do do that side of things. They know the difference between that and someone who's anti them. It's right. really, it's the same as when I met David and I'd never gone out with a black guy. And I was like, oh my gosh, people are like, some people treat you really badly. And it's like, yeah. I'm like, okay. And then some people, so you Your learn very is. quickly. Sorry. Yeah. You learn very quickly. Okay. This person's a natural ally. Some people are just natural allies. And other people, you know, there's work to be done. And that's okay as mm-hmm. well. You know, I, I feel like. Let's just, our big thing is really about crossing the bridge and meeting in the middle. Like, can we do this? I don't want to burn the bridge. I want to work with people. If people are struggling with that, why can't we work on, find a place where we're all comfortable? Mm. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think this takes us right back in a way to the conversation we were having about coaching. You know, some people go, well, I don't naturally get this and I'm uncomfortable with it because I don't get it and I don't understand it and I don't want to use plural pronouns because that's bad grammar and things like that. And other people are like, I don't get it and I don't understand it and maybe I'm not comfortable with it because I don't understand it, but I want to learn. Mm. You know, there are some people who don't want to learn and they don't want to know and they don't want to change and they don't want to embrace change in other people. And there are those who do. Mm. It reminds me of, and I I know I said this before we started recording, but I'll say it on the podcast, that when I was a kid, if you came out as gay, it was a big, big deal. You Mm -hmm. might get rejected by your family. It was, there could be really significant and negative consequences. It was perhaps something that you would hide. That was, Mm -hmm. that just reminds me of like TV shows I watched when I was growing up. That was the experience yes now it is not that way but it it feels unfortunately as though the trans community are experiencing exactly the same the exact same thing exactly the same and the only reason i have hope is i think well we do know that tolerance and acceptance are part of this journey yes i mean i think for for us um i think it's important for me anyway i can only speak for myself or us as parents that we want to be good allies and we want to run alongside and and the most important person in getting the pronouns right is not me is my child or whoever that person is that I'm speaking to so it's not about who cares what I think about with if it's plural well somebody don't really like doing plural like honestly just get over yourself it's not about you it's about them Mm. how about serving them and then I ask that question why is it so hard and I think that's when I realize for some people, they've got stuff in their own lives and one more change is just one too many. Yeah. So I try to have compassion for something's going on for that person that they really resist change, mm-hmm. that they find that change really difficult. They've probably got their own story going on that's very difficult. So part of me is not so tolerant, but there's also part of me that kind of goes, okay, you'll, you'll get it, you'll get there. And also, um, I wish you'd get there quicker, but, <laughs> you know. But also, you know, on that theme... There are people who feel set adrift from certainties. They knew Especially where they them. were in society. They knew their place and everybody knew their place. They knew what was what. And now here we are in a situation where they don't know their place and they don't recognize 
the place that they were in because there are all these new elements that they have to deal with. And as Carrie said, for some people, it's incredibly threatening. It's mm. back to that thing of I've lost something or I'm afraid of losing my certainty. And so, yeah, having compassion for people who also are afraid of losing their certainty is something that, you know, we try to exercise as well. I think it's a, a, a funny one because it's almost like, well, gender is absolute. It's, it's female, male. And so it's, it's re-educating around that and saying it's not the, it's not up and down. Yeah. It's... Yeah. Well, how is it for you? Yeah, so people people have their own views on that, don't they? Um, You know, I remember when Olive told me they were um, non-binary. Did you understand what she meant? What what they meant? meant. No, it's fine. Um, So, uh, no, I didn't understand what they meant. I was cooking and we were in the kitchen and they had a notepad and they wrote on this notepad in really tiny writing, I am non-binary. And then I'm like you know doing me stir fry or whatever I turn around and they they angle the book towards me and I look down and I read I'm non-binary and I look at Olive and I go darling that's lovely lovely and then I just carry on cooking it's almost as though they said I like cheese and I've just gone of course you do darling bit of brie we all like a bit of brie you know I just didn't (laughs) take it seriously I really missed it I it was epic fail on a parent level um because I didn't even ask. I wasn't curious. I just got it wrong. Mm. And then Ty came out as a non-binary um, a, a couple, maybe one or two years later. And I was immediately like, oh, okay, what do I have to do? And Ty was like, okay, so my pronouns are they, them. You know, Ty's now trans, but at the time just non-binary. And okay, my, my pronouns are they, they, them. I went into like, I'm going to read about it. I'm going to be really like the best parent that I can be to my non-binary child. And Olive, of course, is looking at me through gritted teeth <laughs> like, okay, where were you when I said this? And, you know, sometimes <laughs> we fail as parents. And yeah. that was, for me, I just didn't hear it I for some reason my head was shut down now I understand it and I've taken the time to listen I've listened to my children but I also want to say this that it's not every non-binary person's job to educate every person that doesn't get it Absolutely. that's why in a way it's it, it ask us because it's not that we're not so emotionally connected as our mm. children would be and and I think, um, you know, we won't always get it right either. We're still learning. And also, we can't speak on behalf of every non-binary person. I think there's sometimes a pressure in any minority. There's a pressure for somebody to come along and explain or to justify mm. or to represent. And we can only explain our own kids and we can only represent our own family. Mm. I remember when I first met David and almost... Every white person that met David at some point in the conversation would get the conversation round to the fact that David was black. And and I remember after a few months of this saying to David, Doesn't, isn't that exhausting? And he's like, I'm just used to it. Mm. Uh, but I realised that is people trying to process, OK, what do I think about this? And I've watched people when they first meet our children and they know that they're autistic and they're like, okay, I'm meeting an autistic person. And, and you know, they're almost kind of going, oh, they make eye contact. I'm like, yeah. They talk. I'm like, yeah, they do. Yeah. Whole sentences and everything. <laughs> um, you know, and, and I think it's just 
learning about difference and being open to difference. Mm. And I think that's what we've got really bad at. Come on, can we can we just get better at difference? Whatever that difference is, whatever your preferences are, whatever those things are, it could be a whole myriad of things. But just to be a little bit more like, it's okay to be different. Absolutely. Yeah. It doesn't change me if you're different. I can still be me. You can still be you. It just means I might have to use different pronouns. Big deal. Can we talk about misgendering? Because I just did it. Because my neural pathways hear Olive and immediately associate female pronouns, which is why I slipped up then. Yeah. And I really apologise. But it is something that I, I know I... Not struggle with, but it's just something that happens without me mm. before I have a t- before I have time to pull it back into my yeah. face mm. and not say it and use the correct pronouns. Is that something that they have encountered that you have encountered? Oh my gosh, constantly, every single day. So yeah. for someone like me or for someone listening who's like, I don't want to get it wrong, but, yeah. it, but it falls out of my mouth. Yes. And then I've done the very thing I don't want to do. What advice do you have? Do you know what I loved? I loved watching Ty and Olive the other week were doing um, like a little sketch in the kitchen. And Olive said, oh, I had to tell someone today I was non-binary. And I went and I said, I'm non-binary. And then Ty said, oh, my gosh, I just I just get your pronouns wrong. I'm so sorry if I get my if I get it wrong, please. I really apologize. Mm. And they did this whole skit that went on for 10 minutes that what it did was it showed me it becomes all about the person. Yes. yes. And the poor non-binary person is just left like speechless. Like it's just a pronoun, honestly, just what you did was perfect. You corrected it. You moved on. And that's that's the thing to do. Correct it. Move on. And don't over apologize. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, for that, it's again, we had the same thing in the Black Lives Matter period d- during COVID, you know, during lockdown. Everyone was suddenly texting our children and David and going, I'm so sorry about what's going on. You know, and then the onus is on the family to kind of go, don't worry, it's okay. Yeah. I've got to make you feel to better. make you feel better, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we need to get past some of that. I was about it's, to say is what I just did a bit like awkward. saying, some of my best friends are black. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is like that. And we, but you know what? We have to have these conversations or of we're course. not going to get past that. Mm. We have to get past the awkward bit so that we can then just go, Oh, you're just Olive. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we use they, them. Uh, but you're Olive. Mm. Olive is still Olive. Ty is still Ty. And Arlo is still Arlo. And Nathan's still Nathan. And yeah, it's all good. But I think it just is getting past the things where we're, we're not used to or uncertain of or the, the, the differences. Mm. But they're not threatening. Like, come on, guys. It doesn't have to be so threatening. No. It doesn't. Mm. And I sometimes think that that thing of they're just who they are. And... You know, there's a there's a proverb that says if you bring your child up in the way that they should go, when they're older, they'll stay there. They won't depart from it. And what does that mean? Well, to us, that means discover who they are. Discover as they are discovering who they are rather than investing in them being something specific that yeah. you want them to be. Mm. And so when people say, oh, you know, this person has changed, they've changed their pronouns, but they've not changed. Mm. They're just so. wishing to be identified as they are. You know, oh, they're changing gender. No, they're, they're, Yes, but they've not changed. Mm. You know, which is why in some places they call like changing of gen- gender correction don't they? Because it's like, but this has been me my whole life. Mm, yeah, there are people acknowledging who it. their whole life feeling like they're in the wrong body and they're just acknowledging it and going, actually, no, I, I'm going to correct that. Mm. And 
I think it's important to walk with your children and sure you guide. And when they ask advice, the advice is given. And when they reach a certain, because a child reaches a certain age where they're still your kids, but they're not children anymore. Mm. So you give advice as it's asked rather than feeling as though, you know, you've got to push it in all the time. I think also for us, there are bigger things at stake for our children. I think for us, I want my children to love outrageously. I want my kids to be kind, like outrageous kindness. I'd Mm -hmm. love, those are the things that if I, if my kids aren't that, I'll feel really like, oh my gosh, I've got work to be done here, you know? Yeah. How they identify is just yeah, that's fine. That that stuff is kind of it's of course it's big stuff, but in in the big game, in the larger game, it's it's small stuff. What matters is how they fit in the world, how purposeful they feel, whether they love people, whether they forgive people, whether they move on, whether they have a good friendship group. Those things are so much more important. When I asked you what you're most proud of, you did say the fact that they're compassionate, inclusive. Oh, gosh, yeah. I'm so good people. I sit with our our kids and I'm like, just teach me some more. Or someone asked me a question today, could you just help me with this? And they come out with stuff that I feel like I'm constantly being educated. Oh, and, and same here. And you know, that's why we call ourselves shapeshifter parents, because that is what we've had to do. We've literally changed shape. And I think for many, many parents, I think we've done a massive disservice. To, to parenting, when we have this phrase, I just want my kids to be happy. Or even if you don't have kids, I just want to be happy. Like, what the hell? What the hell even is that? Mm. What does it, what, happy? I mean, yeah, some days I'm really happy. Other days I don't want to get out of bed. So well, does that mean I failed? Or is that just a normal life that contains some good days and some bad days? Mm. So I don't aim for my children to be happy. I want to give my children the tools they need to survive this world and prosper and be purposeful and take their place in society however big or small that is just that they're comfortable in their own skin and can and can be can show up as themselves and that that to me is might mean that some days they're sad so they won't always be happy yeah but hopefully when they're unhappy they'll have some tools we'll have put enough into them that they can survive you can, difficulties. You can have sad days within a happy life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it rains in summer. It doesn't mean it's not summer. Yeah. The season doesn't change just because it's a day where the sky is grey and you can't yeah. see the sun. You can have sad days. You can have happy days. But whether you're happy as a person, well, you know, that, that's surely about more than a circumstance. That's surely about more than a piece of good news or bad news. It's it's about yeah. the content of your character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's real, that's real identity. It's yeah. made up of so many things. I asked you uh, what your weaknesses were that you worked on. And for you, Carrie, it was worrying about what other people think. Yeah. And I'm I won- a shocker for that. <laughs> and I wondered if on this particular journey... I think parents are, I am not a parent and my friends who are parents talk to me and I think that they can be extremely critical of each other and I'm just going to leave it at that. Mm. And I wonder if you felt that with your kids and the things that you've 
yeah. gone through an experience. Yeah, I mean, it's a funny thing. Many people that fear criticism enter the industry that we're in, which is really, we take the, talk about risks. Like, let's I have mean, a really big risk. Let me just sing in front of a thousand people. Let me go into the rejection business. <laughs> it is the rejection. Because I don't yeah, want to be that, rejected. Yeah, so we're in the re- I'm just completely in the wrong job. So I'm in the rejection business and now I've got these children that have multiple intersections and I fa- and then we've written a book, you know, like, ah, people might reject us. And, and part of me, I hate that. I hate that I have that weakness. I'd like to just be like David. David's like, hey, it's fine. Not everyone's going to like you. I'm like, yeah, but they just said Are something. you fine or is that? He genuinely is. Yeah, I think is I Is that am, a factory actually. setting? No, no. I'm, I'm. I mean, I really like people, but I'm sure I don't like everybody. <laughs> so I can't expect everybody to like me. Mm. Yeah. I don't know anybody who Be likes more David. everybody. That's my thing. <laughs> I, I love that about David, and I think that's one of the things that really attracted me to David when I first met him was just this very water off a duck's back. If someone criticizes him, even me. Mm. You know, I can be quite harsh with David. And he's just like, yeah, I love that. But yeah, for me, <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm sensitive. I'm very, very sensitive. And, and that sensitivity, I've learned as I've got older that that, that, that sensitivity is a really good thing because that's the thing that makes me empathetic and compassionate. Mm. But the weak side of it is that it makes me sensitive to what other people think. Porous is the Porous. word mm. I yes. like to use oh, I like that. when that's I'm good. describing my sensitivity. Yeah. yeah. Um, it seeps in it seeps in and sometimes you just have to spend a few days away from everybody yeah Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right yeah actually face to face I'm probably fine because then I see someone's humanity it's harder online Mm. I think when I see comments online yeah I think yeah with comments online I just think this comment is about you not about me yes and I'm actually so I'm better at dealing with with online comments than perhaps real life so we need to do a swapsie yeah Yeah. (laughs) I need your your gems yeah um, we're drawing to the end of our time together, but I wanted to ask you about um, a time when you were wrong. And I thought you both gave the most incredible answers. David, yours was really powerful about um, insisting that your child went to school because you were more worried about the attendance officer than Absolutely. actually what might have been going on with your child's mental Absolutely. health. Absolutely. There were days when our, 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 our children were just, I, I can't go in please, I can't go in. And I'd be like, no, you're going in. Because, you know, how do you raise children? Well, you set boundaries, you, you know, and you keep them. Mm. And, and that's, how kids, yeah, mm. that's how kids learn discipline. It's a battle of the wills and you're not going to win. I can play this game all day long, sort of thinking. <laughs> and also, I don't want to have the school on my back saying, where are they? Why are they not here? What's happening? So go in, you'll be fine when you get there. Mm. And it took me a long time to realise that that was more about what I thought good parenting was and not wanting the school to think badly of my child than it was about my kids' mental health. That actually, hold on a minute, being a good parent means being what they need, not what being, being, being what the school needs them to be or what I think they should be. Mm-hmm. But what they need, and I was, that you're going made them feel totally unprotected. And it took me ages to realise that, that actually they couldn't even get protection from me. 
they couldn't get understanding from me mm. because I was throwing them right back into the environment that they were trying to escape from and telling them that there was no alternative. Therefore, I wasn't offering safe haven at all. Mm. And I really regret that because I think that, you know, we can do things that we think are beyond us quite often if we know that somebody understands how difficult it is for us. Mm. But if nobody understands and if everybody yeah. thinks, well, this is easy, what's your problem? It it exacerbates the problem. Mm. Yeah, it's that sort of suck it up, buttercup. Just Absolutely, just do yeah. it. Life's like that. You mm. know what? You're not going to love every day. Go for it. And it's, it just doesn't work like that. But there is a balance, isn't there? Because if you, you can go from one extreme to the other yeah. and it's finding that space in the middle where mm. you're not giving up, yeah. but you're not putting yourself through more So layers. on the one hand, you have demand and on the other hand, you have toleration. Mm. So if your child's toleration levels are really, really low, there is no way you can put demands on them. It just, with our children and anyone that has got autistic teenage children that have got mental health issues they will all say the same pretty much mm. which is if their toleration levels are low you can't put a demand on them no they can't do it but what they. we have to understand is all of that toleration and demand is being driven by mm. anxiety so the more anxious we are and I think this is the same for most people the more anxious we are about stuff our toleration levels go I can't, I can't even do that I can't even I don't even know what to eat now um, can't make dinner mm. forgotten how to make dinner um, you know toleration goes down and someone comes along and says just make a sandwich and you go I can't make a sandwich that's it that i'm done here i'm walking out the door I'm it's the straw that the breaks door. the camel's yeah. back yeah. isn't it and you think what happened there yeah and people look and go well that was totally disproportionate you know what's wrong with them it isn't the thing that they've been it's all the things that have led the up to the thing that yeah. is sitting there yeah so it's under i think once we had that view i mean maybe you were a little later to the i was i was me, but uh, you did get it in late it. to the party people were leaving by the time <laughs> i arrived <laughs> That's how late to the party I was. The lights were up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they'd like broken day. down the speakers. They're taking, like, DJ gone home. It's like, you know, I was, I was just like, oh, any sandwiches left? I'll have a piece of cake and I'll go. No, I think that NBR really changed things for you, didn't it? So I think with nonviolent resistance, we, we learned uh, a way of parenting called nonviolent resistance that really helped. And also this, this phrase that you'll hear a lot, which is like being trauma-informed, I think through doing non, this thing called nonviolent resistance, resistance we learn how to work with our children how to put boundaries in but also how to understand they are traumatized by school and there are many children now who are traumatized by school um, especially post-covid mm. and it's how we and actually many adults even getting out and going out and socializing all of those things just feel feel so big mm. and so they you know we've all gone through a trauma and we've got to work that out internationally nationally locally and in our families individuals mm. how we cope with that trauma and so I think David and I kind of juggle that with our children is like where is this child at the moment mm. what can we push there what is it when is it time to pull back mm -hmm. and that's that's that kind of ebb and flow with with each child and each child is in a different space multiple spaces even in one day yeah and just giving so a broad example of how yeah. it changed actually there used to be that thing we were talking about getting kids to school. They'd be at the school gate going, I can't go in. Yes, you can. The teacher hates me. The teacher loves you. Nobody likes me. I've got no friends. Oh, come on. You know that's not true. You've got true. friends. What about You've got friends. Exactly. And you start naming the friends. And it turned into this. Yeah. So when you 
with nonviolent resistance, we would do, okay, I hate school. Yes, you hate school. Nobody likes me. I hear what you're saying. You, th- you feel like nobody likes you. And the, the teacher actually hates me. Yeah, yeah, you think the teacher hates you. Yeah. And our children would just go, yeah, okay, I, you've, you've heard me. I've been heard. And it's more important that we hear our children than we try to solve their problems. Ah, toxic positivity. Yeah, and when we did that, they go, okay, bye then. And they go in because <laughs> yeah. they were hurt. You just said, yeah, your friends hate you, your teacher hates you, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah we get you. I hear completely that. understand I'm why I'd hate going in there too. And you go, yeah, 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 you get me. Rather than, no, you're completely wrong. And them going, nobody, I have no no agency here. Everybody is denying my lived reality. Yeah. I feel like your book is something that everyone should read. That's really nice. Thank you. Let's hope they do. (laughs) (laughs) Because (laughs) I I am not a parent. These are not things that I have to navigate, but this is the world that we live in. And this Mm -hmm. is the next generation coming up. And I was on a panel discussion a little while ago, and there was a lovely lady on the panel, but there was also um, a trans person on the panel. And that poor trans person was misgendered constantly because and I just watched that and I thought okay you could put it down to an age thing whatever no malice was intended but it made me really see it's very easy to become disconnected from what's going on and become the fuddy-duddy who doesn't get it and then instead of thinking Mm. I I want to be an ally I want to help I want to understand this goes I'm not going yeah, to. I'm checking out of this. There's, I do think there is a, a window, perhaps. Yeah. And I think this book sounds like it bridges that. It mm. m- means that even yeah. if you feel like you know nothing, yeah, you can oh, start. Yeah. It yeah. will meet you where you are. So yeah. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, welcome to the party. That's yeah. literally us. We yeah. had to learn. So, yeah. 100%. We tried to learn and we keep on learning and we're still learning. And it's, it's you know, it, it's a it's tips, it's hints, it's ideas, it's and it's also experiential. And I'm sure that many people will find themselves in it. Mm. It's about relationships as much as it is about family in the, the way that we're talking about family. It's about you and your friend. It's about you and your parents if they're still alive. You know, it's, it's, it's all of those relationships. Mm. How do we navigate people? Mm-hmm. It's just people. Yeah. And that's, we've just analysed ours and... You know, written about it because ours are kind of on the extreme. Yeah, <laughs> really. I can't wait to read it. I cannot wait to share it with everybody Thank you. and Thank you. Le- learn. Yeah, and I might read it and learn something too. <laughs> <laughs> um, Did I write that? Wow. I need, to, I need to actually start doing that then. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you so much Let's for having us. Let's not leave it so long next time. Yeah, no, exactly. Please. 20 years or whatever. Too like 18 years. Too long. Too long. <laughs> if Olive was doing Tracy Beaker, it is 18 years. 18 years. It's 18 <laughs> years. And they're doing Halo now. I don't even know. Oh, that? it's sci fi on Paramount Plus. Oh, well. It's, yeah. Okay. Like proud dad, did you hear? Did you see? I that? did hear. Yeah, Aww. I did hear. Um, and Ty's doing Hollyoaks. Oh my gosh! Taking over the world. Which is not sci-fi, but it's on Channel Four. <laughs> <laughs> Prime time, baby. I'm going to put the links to you, the book, everything in the show notes. But it's just been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank it's you. been a delight. Thanks Thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then make sure you're subscribed so you never miss a show. And why not tell a friend about the podcast? If you want to watch what happens behind the scenes, then head over to my Instagram where I'm at Emma Guns. And if you want to get in touch with me and share any risks, obstacles, challenges, or curveballs that you've faced and overcome, then tell me on thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. And it may feature in one of the midweek shows. Thank you so much for tuning in. I will see you on the next one. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.